This is Recorded Future, Inside Security Intelligence. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Episode 191 of the Recorded Future podcast. I'm Dave Bittner from the CyberWire. Stories about the recently uncovered breach of the SolarWinds Orion software have been dominating the news lately. In this episode, we speak with Jonathan Condra, Senior Manager for Strategic and Persistent Threats with Recorded Futures Insect Group, to get his perspective on what this breach is all about, where we stand in terms of attribution, what it means for the security community writ large, and whether or not a breach like this rises to the level of a cyber Pearl Harbor or a cyber 9-11. Stay with us. It was late on a Saturday night prior to the holidays. I forget the exact date, of course, um, when um, our CEO actually flagged a story in uh, the analyst channel for us asking, uh, hey, we need a note on this. And at, that t- at the time, it was a um, it was the initial news story around the, the breach of the Commerce Department. And I, I forget the actual federal organization, but something to do with transportation, if I recall. Right. Um, and at the time, uh, you know, uh, we, we drafted something up very quickly, you know, on the weekend, which is rather odd uh, to some extent. So we knew it was probably significant, um, but we had no idea that it was going to explode into into what it did. And of course, this had to have happened right before the holidays, as, as they <laughs> tend to do. Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, take us through, I mean, in terms of, of what we know now, like, where do we stand right now? Can you give us a little bit of the background of, of what happened and, and where we stand? Yeah, sure. So um, for those who aren't aware, SolarWinds is a large U.S.-based software company that develops enterprise-grade software uh, to help its customers manage their networks and uh, manage IT infrastructure, all their endpoints, et cetera. Um, in particular, they, they create a product called Orion, so Sol- SolarWinds Orion, um, and that that's the piece of software here that was really affected. Um, so SolarWinds in particular um, – has about 300,000 customers, which is pretty significant, um, mm. at 33,000 of which uh, were notified in December by the company of the incident. Um, but they've, they've actually said that uh, less than 18,000 um, were uh, actually affected in some capacity by it. Um, and that's, you know, that's still a huge figure. There's a lot. We can go into kind of the scope of that later, what that, that breakdown looks like. But um, the, the, high, the high level is that um, attackers were able to, to gain access to solar winds steal the uh, code signing certificate, and then make malicious and unauthorized updates to a uh, dynamic link library file, or otherwise known as a DLL, within the SolarWinds Orion product, um, starting back really actually in October of 2019. But the first malicious update was is believed to have been pushed in March 2020. Um, and that allowed them to backdoor, uh, basically it opened a backdoor into organizations that were customers of Orion, if that makes sense. So this is a third-party compromise, a supply chain, software supply chain compromise affecting these other organizations. Um, and so that that initial backdoor uh, has been called at least two different things by by various research groups or companies, one being Sunburst, <laughs> and I think Microsoft calls it Solar SolarEyeGate. What is the the intended functionality of SolarWinds Orion? If you if you were running this, what were you what were you doing? 
So I mean, it, it helps you manage. It helps you manage your IT infrastructure. Be able to see what's installed on certain uh, certain endpoints. Be able to see who's talking to who, etc. It's kind of a it's an enterprise level management suite that generally people in IT would would use to to make sure that everything is running smoothly and things can talk to one another, etc. Um, there's a bunch of different different modules and things. My understanding that you can you can purchase uh, that do various things, um, but it, it's fundamentally not something that like your average end user would use. It's something that's very specific and would probably be used by either the infrastructure team for a company IT or, or maybe even security to some extent. But by the nature of what it does, uh, would would be able to access many things. Yeah, essentially. I mean, it's if they use uh, solar winds on their network, it would have had visibility into essentially uh, everything, um, and that's that's the concern here. So what do we know in terms of how they were able to get in and, and, and do the things they did to SolarWinds software? Good question. Uh, we don't really know, unfortunately. We, we don't have a lot of information on how they actually breached SolarWinds and got access to it. I mean, if you if you take a step back, the first kind of um, – the first big breach, aside from the aforementioned kind of two government breaches that I mentioned, was kind of FireEye dropping their notification that they had been compromised and their red team tools had been stolen, right? But at the time, it hadn't even been linked to SolarWinds yet. And it took a little bit of time for them to even to determine that the way that they were compromised was via the SolarWinds Orion package. Um, but we still don't have any insight into actually how they initially got initial access into the SolarWinds, the company, to be able to do this to begin with. Um, you know, mm. Traditionally, APT groups have utilized common techniques like social engineering um, via like spear phishing, for example, or, or email uh, to deliver malware or harvest uh, privileged credentials to move laterally or to ele- elevate their own privileges, et cetera, within target networks. Um, but they've also used the other things like uh, watering holes, for example, tend to be a little bit less targeted. Um, malicious insiders is something that I think we need to consider here. Um, and I, you know, ironically enough here, third-party compromises is also a possibility. We just don't know. Um, there was something interesting that came in over the weekend in the New York Times that it was a little bullet point in an article that said that um, it was it's was discovered that some of the solar wind software is developed in Eastern Europe. And so apparently there's an investigation into whether or not that has an access to it. Um, I would hazard to caught when I would caution rather that, um, you know, a lot of companies outsource the development and just because they're based in a certain region of the world doesn't mean that's where it originated from. Um, but that was an interesting tidbit that did come out. Yeah. Well, you know, on, on January um, 5th, um, the, uh, the Cyber Unified Coordination Group, which is a government task force, they came out and said that this was likely Russian in origin uh, in terms of attribution. And, and, and from my point of view, I mean, that's been a really fascinating aspect of this whole thing is that um, there's been lots of folks saying that this is likely the Russians, but Am I right in in my perception that there's been pretty thin evidence? Yeah, you're absolutely right. Um, So I just want to just first set the table – yeah. Myself as well as Recorded Future, we're not making any claims of attribution this time. You know, I, my mm. personal opinion on the subject is that this is obviously a very serious intrusion. It's a various, you know, if you quote CISA and, and the U.S. government here, this is a grave threat to national security. I, you know, we do not have any. Uh, we're not involved in the investigation. We don't have any particular insight into into classified materials that might be going on. We haven't been briefed on it, etc. So, I, my personal opinions here are not representative of potentially the reality, if that makes sense. Um, and mm-hmm. so, we're not sure. making those claims just based on that. But um, what I would say is, uh, very quickly after this this broached, um, after this this happened rather, um, 
there were reports both in the media and even statements from uh, government officials. I think James Inhofe from, from Oklahoma, who's the chairman of the Senate Armed Services Committee, and a few others came out and said that this was uh, was, was Russian uh, in, in origin. And I think even some media reporting had explicitly tied it to APT-29, which has been linked to the Russian Foreign Intelligence Services, otherwise known as the SVR. Um, right. But not a lot of public information to back that up. Um, and <laughs> if, if there's even some of the indications from conversations that I've seen in the community today, people are still asking the question, what do we really have uh, to tie this to Russia at the moment? Um, and I think the answer right. is not much, at least in the open source. I suspect that on the back end, on the high side, uh, classified materials, there's probably a fair bit of information that for whatever reason ties it to Russia, whether it's reused infrastructure or maybe even human intelligence sources within Russia or in region that, that know or are well-placed uh, to know the types of operations that were being run. And so I think it's we have to be very careful with um, assumptions that we make, but also, um, you know, I think we need to let the process play out, if that makes sense. Mm. No, it does. I mean, uh, and, and, and to your point, I mean, what, what I've seen folks saying is that, um, and again, please correct me if I get any of this wrong, but that there's there's been, the, the, the tools that they used were pretty much all original. So it wasn't like you could look to a, a bit of code or something and say, oh, this is just like what the Russians used in this other campaign. Um, but then at the same time, you've had some folks who, I suppose you could say, uh, through their experiences, might be in a position to know, have sort of hinted that, yes, there's, you know, it, it probably was the Russians, and I, we think it was, but we can't quite tell you why yet. Yeah, I mean, I, I think you're right. There's actually kind of two strands to this. The first is the sunburst back door, as well mm. as the first stage uh, malware that was dropped, which I, if I recall correctly, was called Teardrop. Um, but they also saw that was a memory-only dropper that would drop uh, Cobalt Strike Beacon in at least one instance. And Cobalt Strike is an open source tool. That's not right. that's not necessarily a Russian thing. So the evidence from a technical perspective is rather thin, at least to our knowledge at the moment for Russia. That said, there's probably something else, is my, is my guess, um, whether it's within the government or any of the other organizations that are better, um, have better visibility globally. Um, but then there's the other aspect to this, and there, this came out of maybe a week or two after the initial news, that there might even be a second threat actor group involved. Um, and that's a very interesting, if not a little disconcerting, angle to this, where some of the other malware samples that have been identified, and I believe they're called um, Supernova and Cosmic Gale, um, don't seem to overlap at all with uh, the previous samples that had been observed um, and don't seem to be related infrastructurally or anything like that to um, to the, the, uh, the initial threat group that has been at least you know tentatively linked to Russia. So that's hmm. a very interesting um, angle here and whether or not that's a separate Russia group or it's a criminal group or you know whoever it may be, you know we may be actually looking at two separate things here. Well, I mean, obviously this grabbed all the headlines and and I think uh, appropriately so, but, you know, if, if I'm a, a security person and, and I'm in charge of protecting my organization, what should my stance be right now? Is is this something that should have my attention? I would think so. I mean, the the first, well, I would just say, you know, um, SolarWinds on their website prior to them pulling it down uh, to protect the victims said that they had 18,000 customers of, or it was, it was 33,000 customers of, of SolarWinds Orion and 425 of the, of the Forbes 500 as customers, and they listed a, a large number of very prestigious and, and uh, powerful government organizations as customers as well. Um, so I guess the, the implication there is just that there's there's probably a lot of high-level victims here and a lot of uh, major organizations that were affected by this. So all that is to say that, yes, I think most organizations um, have been, uh, for the last few weeks, engaged in an incident response 
uh, an internal incident response effort, whether they do that in, totally internally or they hire a third party to come in and vet, um, probably determines on their, their budget, et cetera. But uh, that's the first step, I think, determining whether or not SolarWinds, uh, you were ever a customer of SolarWinds Orion, and if you ever had those effect, the specific affected versions between, I believe it was between March 2020 and June 2020, and you can check the CISA guidance there for the specific versions that were affected uh, to see if that was ever on your network. Um, and actually, there's something, another kind of interesting angle to this. Even if you weren't a direct customer, it's worth checking to see if you had any third-party contractors uh, on your mm. network that may have had it installed by their own organizations during that time frame or any IT personnel that may have installed the software for testing purposes. They did have a trial version that I believe was, was affected. And I, and I know kind of anecdotally, there have been a few organizations that were never customers of SolarWinds that have since subsequently discovered that you know somebody in IT uh, was playing around one day trying to see what you know, the utility of a tool and, you know, they may have been affected by that. So that's, right. that's something to, to look at. Other than that, I, I would actually review your third-party vendors to begin with, determine which other, um, which other of your software or hardware vendors, et cetera, may themselves be customers of SolarWinds and, and kind of vet their level of privileged access into your own network to determine if they could have moved laterally from that. Yeah, this strikes me as being kind of a, a bit of a gut check for the the whole industry. I mean, it, you know, third party breaches is something that we, we it had been talked about a lot, but when it actually happens and it happens at this scale and hits as many organizations as it did, it, it seems to me like there's a I, I don't know, maybe an unexpected emotional component. Yeah, I, I think there is, and I think part of that is the scale, and probably the timing too. Quite frankly, this is happening right before the holidays after a year like this, yeah, uh, like, yeah. like we've had, just kind of adds to yeah. everybody's stress levels. Um, and during a presidential right. transition, of course, right? Um, right. <laughs> I mean, I, I just think this. I think this does, however, speak to the state of cybersecurity at large um, in the yeah. U.S. and probably globally. Um, you know, there's there's a lot of different elements to securing an organization, whether it's cyber, physical, et cetera, and especially large multinationals and government agencies that that run comp- uh, complex network architectures, run a diverse set of IT technologies and hardware, and even even depending on the type of organization, have differing requirements for data security based on data labels, right? So it's not it's really easy, I think, for the general public to look at this, or even policymakers to some extent who don't have a background, to look at this incident and wonder how can this happen to such esteemed and well-resourced organizations, even intelligence organizations that should know better. But the reality is that this is a, is a very difficult and complicated problem. And even if every organization had more than enough human and financial capital dedicated to cybersecurity, it's inevitable to some extent. This this could happen to anyone. There have always been breaches. Um, the scale is definitely changing. We can get to that. Um, but there have always been breaches of security. You can go back looking over the, you know, just look at the, if you just want to limit it, look at, look at all the uh, compromises of uh, the U.S. intelligence community over the Cold War. I mean, that's it's no different in some respects. Uh, the scale is a little bit scary. Um, but I, hmm. I think that's an important thing to recognize here. No, it's it's a really good point. And, and I think it's also... I mean, related to that, it's interesting that I, there's been very little finger pointing, which I think speaks to your point that there, there's acknowledgement that this could happen to anyone. I certainly hope so. I mean, I, I do expect, you know, I think some of the finger pointing right now is probably, maybe this is a little, uh, I don't want to say dark, but a little bit pessimistic of me. I, I, I think maybe the some of the finger pointing is a little dampened at the moment by the fact that everybody's hair is still on fire. We're still trying to figure out the scope mm. of it. I, I do think there'll probably be a, a you know an after action that's done after the full scope after initial reme- remediation is done and after the full scope is understood i think and what you know i think there'll be a kind of a, a reckoning hopefully at a national policy level 
um, to help us figure out exactly what went wrong and how we prevent it in the future. But, you know, I just want to, you know, caution listeners that, you know, even the best, even the best policy frameworks aren't perfect and they can even have uh, unintended consequences. So no matter what we do, this is going to happen again. Um, but I, I, do, I do think this is probably a wake up call to uh, the federal government that its current strategy um, is probably flawed. And I think it's time at a societal level to realize that this is a national problem that really requires a whole of government response and probably even changes to how we think about defending private networks from, from nation state adversaries, right? I mean, it's, if, if, thank God this was only a, you know, at least by the announcement from uh, CISA and the NSA yesterday, thank God that this looks like it was just a uh, cyber espionage campaign. I say just kind of flippantly, but, you know, it could have been a lot worse. Like if they had gone after uh, critical infrastructure, for example, and turned off electricity and water and disrupted logistics systems, uh, we, we would have a much different situation on our hands. And I, I think hopefully that this is a wake-up call that, yes, we've, we've invested a lot of money in detections for um, – bad entering our networks or even looking at uh, endpoints and, and removing an, uh, anomalous uh, files or isolating anomalous endpoints based on behavior, right? But we haven't really looked at supply chain in the same way. Um, and I think that this this should be a um, kind of an alarm bell, if that makes sense. Uh, it, it's, yeah. it's very – fewer organizations are well-equipped to alert on authorized access than they are on unauthorized access, if that makes sense. Yeah. Well, I mean, to that point about about espionage, I mean, uh, one of the things that that was noteworthy is in the immediate aftermath, you know, you saw some folks and in my mind, I I remember particularly some politicians uh, at the national level, you know, were saying things like this, this was this a a cyber 9-11? Was this a cyber Pearl Harbor? Do you have any insights on that in terms of how we should calibrate in our own minds for how we how we categorize something like this? It's a good question, um, and it's a very difficult one. I I would kind of shy away from you know viewing this as quote unquote an act of war or a cyber nine eleven or Pearl Harbor. You know, it, to my knowledge, nobody died in this incident. Yes, it may have grave implications for national security, and down the line, that may have some some sort of those effects. But mm. there's generally a line drawn, at least in international relations and policy, um, between you know kinetic attacks on a, on a state and and associated infrastructure and cyber, and that you know whether or not, I know that line is not very well defined even in international law at the moment, which I think is something that should you know really take precedence at this point. Um, but I, I I don't I don't see the comparison there. I do think maybe at a level of severity it's there, but it, I don't think it warrants the same response. Like I don't think we are going to war with Russia over this, presuming that it was Russia, right? Um, mm-hmm. And I, I think it's also really important to put this into co- proper context. Um, this is espionage. This is one of the oldest professions on the planet. It has existed since time immemorial. It pretty much always will until there's I, – I mean, actually, I think even if there's a unified world government, it'll still happen. Um, and this isn't like this, – this happens in a vacuum, right? Um, this isn't something – I mean, the U.S. has the largest intelligence establishment in the world, the most resourced, the most technologically advanced. It's not like we don't do these types of things ourselves. We just don't tend to hear about them for a variety of reasons. Um, you know, I can't speak yeah. to specific examples, but I do think it's important to put that to have that in the back of your mind when you're considering what would be proportional policy responses. Can you give us some insights? I mean, what what goes on behind the scenes with you and, and your team there at Recorded Future? You know, the, the Insect Group. When something like this comes to your attention, what's the internal response like? 
Yeah, so I mean, I, I can say from an internal perspective, even independent of, of our duty to our, our customers and our clients, uh, we, we kind of adopted a two-pronged approach. One was, of course, vetting whether or not we had ever been affected by this or we ever use SolarWinds. And I'm happy to say that the answer to that is no. Uh, that was kind of the initial the initial gut check, right? Um, and then the second thing was starting to amalgamate what, what has been released in open sources or things that we're able to pull from data sets that we do have um, and authoring uh, reports for our clients in a condensed way that's consumable that they can brief up to their executives or their SOC, et cetera, including IOCs, et cetera, um, that they can um, use to defend themselves, right? Or, or notify whether or not they're, they're seeing um, related activity. And that really started with the release of the Fire, uh, FireEyes Red Team tools on GitHub and, and the associated detections. Um, shortly after that, we started digging into some of the, um, the first stage callback uh, domains, which were de uh, generated by the Sunburst backdoor that used an algorithm, a DGA, a domain generation algorithm, uh, to uh, encode the domains of victims. And when I say victims here, I mean people, organizations that had installed the malicious package, but not necessarily victims of subsequent um, data exfiltration. Um, and we were using some decoders that had been published by other companies, as well as some internal work that we had done to develop our own to decode those uh, domains that we were able to see from um, uh, sources like Pastebin, GitHub, Passive DNS, et cetera, and actually we're able to provide a list to our clients of, of roughly 300 domains uh, that we had observed with relatively high confidence communicating with the first stage callback domain. Um, and that, that allowed the customers to not only determine whether or not they were initially impacted by this, but also whether any of their third-party vendors might have been. As well, and that you know, that's a small snapshot of, of of the truth. That's a small snapshot of what we were able to see. You know, we're not. I don't think we're fully out of the woods on this one yet. Unfortunately, uh, the it's been really hard over the holidays and over the last few days to keep up with all the the breaking news uh, around it. It seems like every day you wake up and there's a new organization affected, or there's a new little facet of it that's that's worthy of noting. So I, I think that there's there's probably more to drop here. I don't I don't think the final shoe has dropped as it were. As the investigation plays out, I think it's going to be important to kind of keep a keep a cool head in all of this, especially at the national level. The people who um, uh, have, you know, are kind of driving the train here. Uh, they need to mm. they need to understand that this was not at the level, at least in my opinion, of of a nine eleven, and that we respond in a, in a proportional way that doesn't, at the end of the day, end up undermining um, stability internationally or uh, putting more actual lives at risk. If that makes sense. Our thanks to Recorded Futures' Jonathan Kondra for joining us. Be sure to check out the blog section of Recorded Futures' website for more on this research and many of the other things that the Insect Group is up to. Don't forget to sign up for the Recorded Futures Cyber Daily email, where every day you'll receive the top results for trending technical indicators that are crossing the web. Cyber news, targeted industries, threat actors, exploited vulnerabilities, malware, suspicious IP addresses, and much more. You can find that at recordedfuture.com slash intel. We hope you've enjoyed the show and that you'll subscribe and help spread the word among your colleagues and online. The Recorded Future podcast production team includes coordinating producer Caitlin Mattingly. The show is produced by The Cyberwire with executive editor Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. Thank you.